Good evening, good citizens. Welcome to November 2022's Dante's Old South. I'm your host, Clifford Brooks, and tonight I bring you two brilliant souls in the worlds of poetry and visual art. Up first, we have former U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky here to talk about his new memoir. And second, we have Ruth Ann Thorne, a juggernaut in the world of visual art and a passionate activist for America's indigenous peoples. Before we launch into this mad puppy, I want to thank a few folks. WETC and NPR for all your support. Richard Wenham for keeping this machine on the tracks. Michael Amade for all of his support. The Red Phone Booth, Autism Speaks, and Meadowbrook Inn have all been fantastic supporters of this show and the magazine, The Blue Mountain Review. But as a special gift, all the music today will come from the incomparable The Main Squeeze. And here's a taste of their sound called Sunday Morning. You're always shouting with your Sunday morning smile. I said you're always shouting with your Sunday morning smile. I love the way you smile. Let me flip your pancake, baby, I can brew your coffee too. I don't even drink it, but I'll make it hot for you. Ask me why I love you, I got answers, I can give a few. But I can't stop staring at Ooh, I give all my love and all my heart to you. There's something special about
And up now on Dante's, we have former U.S. Poet Laureate and Pulitzer Prize nominee, Robert Pinsky. Robert, how are you doing, boss? I'm doing swell. How are you, Clifford? I am fine and dandy like sour candy. I uh, could complain, but I won't. Um, it is a tremendous honor to have you on the show this evening. And uh, to start at the beginning, um, as far as our friendship goes, music has always stood out. And to jump in, as far as the melody goes, what music uh, are you into now that more people should be aware of? I, uh, I'm i kind of uh, totally out of step with anything that's current in music. I've been listening lately to the... Uh, uh, Charlie Hayden album, uh, the Liberation Music Orchestra, uh, yeah. Dreamkeeper. And I'm liable to put on something like that uh, or uh, the Coltrane Ballads album. I'll just indulge myself. And uh, it's not that I don't listen to classical music or to rock and roll, but when I really want to when I really want to treat myself, it'll be something like uh, Charlie Hayden. So that's that's what I was listening to this afternoon. So that's what's in my mind. Uh, I uh, I grew up in the era of uh, it was possible to both love the uh, classic doo-wop and uh, early Sam Cooke and also yeah. be listening to uh, the modern jazz quartet and uh Clifford Brooks, and uh, it was <laughs> it was a kind of uh, omnivorous appetite for music, not unlike my attitude towards lots of things, including uh, poetry, television, movies, food. Let's jump into some of that. Um, I have witnessed you perform with jazz musicians, so. Let's let's focus on that. Um, in the past, there have been some, I mean, truly amazing performances. Uh, tell us how those um, how those projects come together. Like, how does that come across your desk? The spirit of improvisation is important to me, and I've been lucky to work with some great musicians. Uh, when I was in L.A., just for example, Bobby Bradford and his band. Um, Bobby was incredibly solicitous about the mic setup for me mm -hmm. and uh, the speaker setup for me. Uh, the people I've worked with, the same VJ Iyer, uh, who's a local here, there's this idea about jazz that I believe in that it is, there's something inherently communal and democratic about it. And everybody is soloing all the time, including the rhythm section. No matter how steady what they're doing is, they're listening to one another. All the musicians are listening to one another. I was lucky, uh, probably the most important connection has been with Lawrence Hobgood. Lawrence was, the, uh, for years, the music director as well as the pianist for the, uh, in a way, leading jazz singer right now, Kurt Elling. And Kurt Elling uh, asked permission to adapt uh, one of my poems to a classic jazz tune. And it went into a book that a man named uh, Richard Connolly published. And when they performed here, I think it was at the uh, Regatta Bar, uh, here in Boston, I met Lawrence, and we uh, we hatched this scheme. Richard got us a studio, and uh, it for me it was like that Shakespeare play where somebody comes back to life. Right. Loved working with other musicians uh, in my twenties, my teens, and my twenties, and it was a joy I thought was over. And suddenly I was working with Lawrence, and I'm proud to say that through me, Lawrence met Stan Strickland, the uh, reed player and vocalist who, uh, who teaches at Berklee School of Music here in Boston. And uh, 
Stan and Lawrence speak music to one another. And I'm not fluent, but I understand it. And uh, it was wonderful. And Vijay is fascinating in another way. Vijay insists that the communication all be in the music. The first time I uh, practiced with him before our first performance, um, it wasn't going well. I realized I had to turn my back on him and have my music stand facing the wall. Then we were communicating because mm -hmm. it was all through what you hear. And uh, as with writers, every musician is different. And as with reading, every poem is different every time you read it. Um, working together, you're dealing with the fact that it's different every time. That touches on something that I love to bring up when it comes across the table. And that is the delivery of poetry. Um, yes, you've collaborated and done some amazing things, but you command the mic too while you're there solo. Um, how did you perfect your reading voice in the, in the way that you bring some theatrics to grab the audience the way you do? You read in order to be worthy of reading, uh, being what I call a non-singing vocalist. From my path, just speaking for myself, it meant needing to read 16th century poetry. You need to have in your veins, in your brain, fine necks for ladies, cheap choice, brave and new, good penny words, but money cannot, uh, money cannot move. I keep a fair, but for the fair to view, a beggar may be liberal of love, though all my wares be trash, the heart is true. Or even in our early 20th century uh, rhymers, Robinson, Chief Fearson, and we'll always ask what fated her to choose him. She meets in his engaging mask all reasons to refuse him. So if that comes in your ears, there's a good possibility that you'll be able, you'll be, uh, you'll have the privilege of aspiring to have something like it come out of your mouth. So it's it's reading really musically great writing and uh if you read enough of it my hope is it's what i try to do with the young when i talk to young poets you read enough of things that you think really are great maybe you'll get some muscles you know like yeah. hoops or playing tennis with a really great player maybe without even thinking about it you're going to get better Emerson that said, "Tis the good reader that makes the good book." And then uh, Harold Bloom, I think I was, I was reading recently, that says the same thing. And and it, it just well, actually, it was years ago I read it. It came crashing back now. The well, the importance of memorizing. So, thing about Harold Bloom is, if you listen to him read aloud, like many academic critics, you realize there's a lot of the most important part of the art that he just didn't get. I. I, yes, I've never had this kind of, I, I, it's, it comes, it's, it's stodgy. Stodgy is the, the word that, uh, that I would use. And it's not, it, the, it the jazz. Has hearing. It has to do with hearing. Uh, I can tell mm -hmm. when uh, a young poet or when a famous critic reads something aloud, it doesn't have to be flamboyant, but either it knows what this is or it doesn't. Taking a step back as far as putting it on the page, uh, when you go in to write a poem, uh, do you have many faces that you choose from to kind of to 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 head off uh, something that's coming across your mind? Or is it the same voice that you use? Because the cascade is there when you read your work. Um, but to go inside the mind, is it is it the same man or do you shift from poem to poem? For me, there is this overplus of confused merged staccato and legato ideas and memories and experiences and the normal state is to feel overwhelmed by them and you're just hoping maybe you can find a little little phrase a little musical phrase, 
a little rhythm, the this, the that, but not the do. If it did the day, it would, if you get some little bit of syntax, maybe you'll get a part of it, some one memory, some what some some machine or bit of nature or a person and all the flood of things that you're remembering and perceiving you're just looking my <laughs> a figure i've used for it sometimes a comparison is when you're drowning <laughs> you're trying not to sink anything that floats that comes by you'll grab it It's true, and and the the musical quality that that you know that you bring into it. Um, that's a there's an enormous amount of I. This is me talking natural ability that comes through it. But then once I began to hone it through practice, the question I have for you from all that talk is, how do you feel or do you have um, a, an equation for how much natural talent you need to have? Uh, not verses, but in al alongside the uh, the academic practicing and sharing and workshopping. Do you do you have an idea about that? Everybody's path is different, and you can't prescribe how it works. Uh, for me, I I say in this autobiography that's subtitled "Becoming an American Poet." Uh, in this book, it, it, in in Jersey Breaks, I tell about being very, very young, being really an infant. I swear, I think I may have done it in my crib. I'd hear the rhythm of a sentence. I'd hear the rhythm of a sentence. And I needed to tap it out. And I needed to think about uh, rhythm, rhythm. And how, what is it about the first syllable makes it stand up? It's like a tune, it's pitch, rhythm, yeah. And the and the are so long, rhythm. And yet it's quick, so it's quick and long. And I would think that way, and it really did feel like biting your fingernails or some other annoying, not stepping on the cracks in the sidewalk. It was a particularly useless tick. And it turns out that possibly you can do something with it that other people will actually be interested in. Right. So for it, me, it, it was taking that and remains taking that obsession with what the vowels and consonants are doing, what the sentence melodies are, and then trying to put something, put something that you can see or feel or smell or think into it. Make it intelligent in the sense of intelligence, like military intelligence. Can I make the, can I make that thinking about sentence sounds actually be intelligent? It's it, it comes across. I've I've never picked up on it before now. And, and I uh, I work with people who write sonnets so well that I would read them and not know that that's what I was seeing. And there's but there was that tick. They're like, what is it about this? And when they do it, because they don't sit down and go, I'm gonna write a sonnet. There's they all say that the sonnet picked them and they sat down and that thing hummed out. And that's again that comes back to me now because it resonates with what you're saying about your poetry. And then, and then I hear it in your poetry when I think back on it, there's a, there's a, there's a metronome. There's a, the, the music there is always paced. Um, and did it ever question, um, when you were, when you were developing your sound as a poet, uh, the way that you just described how you came into rhythm, did you find that there even was any kind of instruction from how to hone that skill? Or did you, you know, did you kind of find yourself pioneering it? Well, I go back to reading. Uh, if you, I don't know what was I, 12 years old? When you read, I tie my hat, I crease my shawl, life's little duties do precisely, as the very least were infinite to me. I tie my hat, I crease my shawl, life's little duties do precisely. So the first four is two and two. 
I tie my hat. I crease my shawl. That's four made out of two and two. And then the next four is life's little duties do. Precisely. It's three and one. And at some point, very early on, I started thinking, it's true of fives too. Now is the winter of our discontent. It's two on one side of the little middle and two on the other side of the other little middle. It makes five. Why I started thinking that way, and it took me, it was many years later, people told me about I ams, but I was just thinking about lines. And I, I don't know exactly how I thought it, but I knew that ballads and hymns were related to Dickinson. It's true. It's true. And, and we've talked and brought up in, in just this last few minutes, so many heavy hitters in the music world and in literature. And when I first got your book, um, of course, the interior is genius. But what first caught my interest was you're blurbed by Bruce Springsteen. Um, how did that happen, man? Um, there's a wonderful thing that was happening at Fairleigh Dickinson in, in, uh, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, Wombfest, the Words and Music Festival. And uh, it was uh, it was it was run by a wonderful local poet, uh, local to me, and he did various combinations. And Bruce, it turned out, knew my work. I think because it wasn't directly because of this. But I think I gave a reading that went well at the uh, at the school his his child went to, mm -hmm. and one thing just led to another, and it was uh, David Daniel gets a lot of the credit. And I, uh, I was so surprised. Bruce was so generous. I mean, he was he was interested in in reading my work, and for the audience. You know, we had an audience of it was a sort of a lottery for the college kids. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they uh, we, they liked us, <laughs> so I don't know what to say about it. Really, uh, we immediately recognized. You know, in the book, I say that uh, we uh, you know we were born in the same hospital as West Stace when he when he introduces us. The thing is on YouTube, the performance. The performance went well, and uh, so then we we became friends. And to me, it's not. I think possibly. I think possibly my obsession with poetry makes me inherently. I don't have a lot of big response to to fame. You know, we have right. some poets like Dickinson and uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins that we uh, we know didn't win prizes. And, you know, I think Bruce is a great songwriter and performer. And uh, he's always generous to other ones. You know, he's yeah. gen generous to Roy Orbison when Roy Orbison was kind of old and out of style in this country so it was characteristic of him and i don't know i don't know what to say about it that's cool it's 
as we round down in this segment, uh, talking about the book specifically, what are what's one thing that uh, folks, not just writers, but people in general, uh, need to come in and take away from this new book? It's something about American culture and the quest, the unending quest for a democ- a truly democratic culture, whatever that means. We don't know what it means. We know that we're not going to be able to preserve a political democracy without social democracy. And we can't maintain social democracy or achieve it without a cultural democracy. And what that means in this country, you know, we came so close to fascism so often, as in uh, Philip Roth's fantasy of Lindbergh becoming president. And uh, it's become a truism that there's nothing new about racism or anti-Semitism or uh, worship of uh, authority. That's all there. And then there's something else that has let us survive it. And I believe that arts like music and poetry are not ornaments. They're not at the edges of human intelligence or culture. They're right at the middle of it. And the genius of American culture is mishmash. Is mixing things, and uh, I'll quote the my friend Louis Shudsoke, who's director of Black Studies at my university. Somebody said uh, about cultural appropriation, which is a valid term. Louis said, "Yeah, yeah, it used to be called culture, mm. and our best national products." like jazz, it's child rock and roll, it's parent, it's mother of the blues, the American feature film, the American Western, this fantasy of all these Jewish producers and screenwriters that you have to be a quick draw. It has no relation. You read the actual accounts of gunfights in the, in the Old West, guys would miss one another close up a lot. Or hit the wrong guy. It was not <laughs> in the least like uh, James Stewart or, or somebody versing, uh, versus the most famous bag on the technicality of who fired first. Mm. It's a beautiful fantasy. And it's an ugly fantasy. And, um, you know, John Houston's attempt to make it up to the uh, uh, Indian nations, all a mishmash. And I believe that uh, our best hope has got to do with our music, our films, and our poetry, and the possibility of using that first-person pronoun I just used. Robert Pinsky, former U.S. Poet Laureate and the Pulitzer Prize nominee, author of the new autobiography, Becoming an American Poet, Jersey Breaks, Robert Pinsky. Um, it has been a true honor to have you on the show. And when people get done here, they can check our show notes for all the links to buy your book, check you out online, and see your books from the past that have defined and redefined poetry. But to tell them here, how do we find you online? Oh, there's all okay. I don't think it's hard to find robertpinskypoet.com. And uh, I'll recommend videos that are not I'm not in, but Favorite Poem Project, definitely should look at favoritepoem.org, see the yeah. construction worker reading Whitman, the Jamaican immigrant reading Plath, the Cambodian-American kid reading a Langston Hughes poem. And I did a MOOC called The Art of Poetry. And you look at The Art of Poetry MOOC, and that's uh, all the best teaching I can do in one place. So there's a lot of that out there. Robert Pinsky, this has been a delight, man. And uh, we'll have you back on soon as you have some new stuff to talk about, all right? Pleasure. Pleasure talking to you, Clifford. And now, let's listen to I'll Take Another by The Main Squeeze.
And now on Dante's Old South, we have Native American entrepreneur, Ruth Ann Thorne. Ruth Ann, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. And I want to let you know that this has been a moment that I've been waiting for, I think for about a month now. So I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> That's the nicest way of saying that we've had to postpone 75 times I've ever heard in my life. And I appreciate the way you did that. Thank you very much, Ruthann. Um, what I want people to know out the gate um, is that you wear so many hats. And um, what drew me to you as an art dealer is the way that you made that entire industry kind of bend to your vision. Uh, so to to see if I'm right or wrong about that, tell us how you see the the art world and, and how you got into it with both feet. Oh boy, that's a that is that could be a discussion for hours. But to me, art is I think the number one thing is it's healing. And I've had people come into my galleries over the years and ask me this question, which I think is a really good one. Um, does anybody actually need art? And I always answer them, does anybody actually need music? Right. I mean, when you think about it, you don't, you could live perfectly fine without music, but could you? And I think yeah. that's the beauty of the visual. To me, art is what is music is to the ears, art is to the eyes and to the soul, because it's created individually by one person that's on the planet for just a short amount of time. And then it surpasses their life. And if it's really great art, it inspires people forever. And that's why we go to museums. So to me, art is something that only one person can create. And it's a living, breathing entity. And we all perceive it differently, just like when we listen to music. But it enriches our lives because it touches an area within our existence which i refer to as the soul or the spirit and it's something that i don't think that we really talk about very much is that there are things that are intangible like music that inspire us and give us the richest life we could possibly have and art is one of those How do you know? How do you know? Because when I when I when I did a deep dive to find those that you represent, your your palette, there's no it's not boxed in. You don't there's not a thing that you go for, but there's a richness in every single one you choose. What is it that draws you to certain artists over others? It's an authenticity. Yeah. It's when an artist is brave enough to share who they are inside with the rest of the world within that rich creativity that they only can um, exude onto the canvas or whatever their medium is. And so they're not trying to be like someone else. Uh -huh. They are brave enough to be themselves. And I think that's where you see the greatest expression in every medium of art, music, culinary arts, whatever it is. And it takes a real bravery to be an individual in this world. To turn that around um, bravely where it should be on you, uh, in your individuality, tell us how you define yourself with your blood and who you are. So yeah, that's a really interesting question as well, because, you know, as a Native woman, so my, my dad is full Luceno, which I'm actually living on the reservation as we speak. I moved back about three years ago. And then my mother is half Chinese, half Dutch. Okay. So I, I come from immigrant um, family. My grandparents, my grandmother was from Holland. And then my grandfather was from Shanghai. And they, right. they met at Cornell. So I have this immigrant blood. But I identify... <laughs> as a native woman in a greater sense because the land that i'm standing on is where my dna communicates with the actual earth and so i think that's what makes native people a little bit different you know there's a lot of people i've talked to over the years when it comes to blood blood quantum 
that, you know, they'll say, well, you know, come on, you know, can you guys already get over it? I mean, here you are, you're on this land, you know, be American already. And what people don't understand is that this land was occupied by 100 million people for 23,000 years documented, probably longer than that. And so we, in our, in our DNA, in our blood, we communicate with this land just like anybody else that goes to a country that they're from. So you'll hear people go, oh, I went back to Scotland. And when I got off the plane, I just felt like I had this sense of belonging. Well, of course you did. Because the the ground under your feet communicates with your DNA cells. And so I identify as a Native woman because I'm on this Native land. And this is where my family has resided. So we've been the caretakers of this place for a really long time. So I, I can pick up that vibration here. You said blood quantum. Is that what you said? Yes. T- tell me about that. I like the way that's so, coming out of your mouth. <laughs> so blood quantum is a controversial term um, that is used by our federal government, by the BIA that was obviously established um, to make sure we didn't get out of line as wild Indians and savages that we are. Um, So the idea is, is that, um, you know, hopefully at some point the government was hoping that we would just not exist because we would, we would not have enough blood to even call ourselves um, native people. And the unfortunate thing is, is that is becoming quite a reality because the way that it was thought out and orchestrated was to take natives, put them out on these pieces of land called reservations, which were less than desirable, and separate the the families so that when you're on a reservation like mine, which is less than 500 people, you're related to everybody. So you're certainly not going to you know, co-create and therefore you have to, you have to marry outside. So now the blood is becoming thinner and thinner. So blood quantum is a really big deal. And, you know, the, the government has hoped that at some point we would just not exist. And then the reservations, they could take the land back and then that's the end of the Indians. So we always say that one drop of native blood is native blood. Um, because again, this is our, this is the land that we've we've been on. I mean, most Native people look at the United States as an occupied country, just like there have been over over the years. You know, we got overtaken, but we haven't we haven't decided that this is still not our country. <laughs> you take the whole one drop of blood and enrich it from the roots up, because you don't just. And I don't mean this to dismissively just work in the art world. You do video and podcasts. And you get into film. You you do all of this to to, uh, to bring attention to and lift up your community. And I really want you to tell us all about it now. Okay. Well, it's a huge passion of mine. And it, it stems out of art and creativity. I started a show on a um, Native, uh, I guess it's a Native um, content uh cable channel called First Nations Experience. They're the largest cable provider for natives that make content. So this video series is called Art of the City, and it was about artists. Uh And now I'm working on a whole new series called This is Indian Country, which is all about um, native people that are creating on and off reservations. So we've got, I call them city Indians, Uh and then you have Indians that are still on the reservations. But the, the idea behind it was twofold. One was to show that, yes, we are still here, which a lot of people ask, are those Indians still around? They're everywhere. And you go to into any area, any state, any city, mm. and we're there, yeah. amazingly enough. And then also to remove the stereotypes of who we are, because people think, if, oh, if they're still around, you know, we're all the same people. And we're not. We're very diverse in the way that we live, um, within our the clothing that we wear, food, dance, etc. But I think the thing that's really very important is that I'm documenting the last group of people that are here. 
And right now, the way that we're looking down, you know, the barrel of a gun is that there's a very good chance that our bloodline, we won't be here in another 150 years. And so by documenting the people that are here and their stories, that again creates a historical document of the people from all over what we refer to as Turtle Island. So I'm passionate about it. I think it's important work. How do you choose the projects that you go after? Because as an entrepreneur, once you get a uh, toehold in success on any level within that hierarchy, you have some really good, a lot of sometimes really good ideas thrown at you. How do you pick the winners? I always find a problem and I, I want to solve the problem. Yeah. It's never about the money and it's never about, oh, you know, wow, that could make a lot of, you know, whatever. It's, is there a problem that really needs to be solved? And it can be something as important as documenting people who are native from all over the different tribes. You know, there's 537 recognized, federally recognized tribes. So there's a lot of places to go. Um, Or it could be something like, you know, recently I'm working on a project that I came up with an idea when I learned about blockchain, helping artists secure their intellectual property rights Yeah, yeah, yeah in yeah. a way that, you know, that would hold their existence there and would allow for whether you're a famous artist or not to store, if you will, almost like a time capsule, your imagery and be able to show who created it, when they did, the inspiration, all of that in a place that we've never had before until blockchain came along. So those types of things are, you know, to me, it's like, okay, where does the problem lie and where is the solution? That's what I'm always looking to do. That's uh, the energy that drew uh, not only me, but the entire company of the Southern Collective Experience behind you to ask, uh, I think two months ago to have you as the uh, featured cover interview of our November, uh, December issue. And, uh, and I'm, not, we can't thank you enough for that. Well, I'm blown away and completely, you know, honored that you would have me on the cover. Well, once they uh, get that issue in their hands, as it were, and, and read about you more then. Before that happens, how do we keep up with you online and maybe even donate to what you're doing to make sure it happens? Well, I try to stay active on social media. I have my own personal Facebook page. I think it got filled up and I can't figure out how to convert it because I just love, not only do I love posting because I love to keep people in in the loop, but I love following people to see what they're doing. So I think Facebook has to fix that. Um, But um, Instagram is a good one, and it's Art of the City TV. And then you're going to be able to see where I go, who I I film, all of the above. It's really great. Ruth, it's been fantastic to have you on. And we'll have you back on again soon. Um, This being Native American History Month, it's apropos that you be the meat of the show. And again, as with the magazine, it's an honor to have you on. Oh, my gosh. It's my honor. Thank you so much. And now we listen to This World by the Main Squeeze.
It has been a divine pleasure to share this evening with y'all. Thank you for joining me for Dante's Old South this November of 2022. I'm your host, Clifford Brooks, and I want to thank our guests, Robert Pinsky and Ruth Ann Thorne. My gratitude goes out to NPR and WUTC for all their support over the years. I want to thank Richard Wenham for keeping this crazy train on the rails and Michael Amade for making sure I stay sharp. Thank you, Meadowbrook Inn. Thank you, Vaughn Paul and Sharky's Hostel. Thank you, Red Phone Booth. Thank you, Autism Speaks. And thank you, Mostly Mutts. All of these wonderful people I urge you to check out. And while you're online, please check out what I'm doing on www.cliffbrooks.com and the greater projects with my company, www.southerncollectiveexperience.com. I have a series called The Brooks Sessions on Teachable for Creative Writing and another series on Adulting with Autism. The new, new news is that Mercer University Press has picked up my fresh collection of poetry called Old Gods. And here's a poem from it called Roswell's Day of the Dead. Orpheus and Eurydice think they are free of Hades, but that's never true. Canton Street moves with families, classic cars, us loving in the past. We danced to Dia de Muertos, a dog dies, and wind chimes. Before the corona in Havana outside Atlanta, the two of us walked as the dearly departed. The small city opens into aqueducts, food trucks, breweries, in a cemetery. Old books, an ancient man with dyslexia, jaundiced eyes, my kind, my kindred, and he asked me to read him Tennyson. Talk comes easy, but laughter skipped out. No family on my side of the table, rented space, forth of nothing fireworks frighten us. The end's not long now. Nocturnes close, the town retires and crowds. The crushed happiness is far, far away from me. No interest harangued. Tomorrow, the park opens. The symphony played out to Dia de Muertos. Y'all have a good night. Be kind to one another. And be at peace. Good night.